0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, how did Taylor Swift build her empire?
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news.
1: in central London. It's a drizzly evening. Everyone's got their umbrellas out, but there are queues forming outside the cinema where I'm standing because people are waiting to see Taylor Swift's new film, Eras. Now, this is just a film about her latest tour, her world tour, but it's set to be the biggest film of the year. And I want to find out why. What is so magnetic about this pop star? So what's brought you along to the film tonight? Why do you love Taylor Swift this much? I've loved her since I was like six. I mean, we're just Taylor Swift fans. <laughs> I've been for a long time, so we thought, why not? Would them. you call yourself a Swiftie? Yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah. Well, I really love like how raw and personal the songs are to her. I think it's just music that you can relate to. Even if you haven't been through
3: that exact scenario, you find like a way to relate. <laughs> I feel like she's written my life out before I even experienced it. Are
1: people in there singing along to everything?
0: Yes. You can barely hear yourself in there. It's an amazing atmosphere. Welcome to the
4: Eras Tour.
1: This has been the most extraordinary experience of my entire life. In the first four days of its release last weekend, Taylor Swift, the era's tour, made $128 million. That's about 105 million pounds, which makes it the highest grossing concert film of all time by a long way. The world tour itself, which is due to run until next winter, is expected to be the highest grossing tour of all time. When Taylor Swift comes to town, her fans spend millions on merchandise, on accommodation, on eating out, a phenomenon the academics who study her have called Swiftonomics. She's the archetypal image of America's girl next door, with an acoustic guitar in her hands and hundreds of millions of dollars in her back pocket. In a fickle music business, how has Swift retained so many fans and proven herself shrewd enough to endure? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the making of Taylor Swift. Laura Snapes, you're the deputy music editor for The Guardian, and I know. You've been a Taylor Swift fan for years, maybe not big enough to call yourself a Swifty, but you did, when you were in LA this summer, go to see her on the Era's tour. What was it like being there?
3: It was stratospherically huge. I don't think I've ever been in a venue quite that big. It's like being bludgeoned with delight. Like, usually you go and see a pop show and there's a smattering of hits throughout and then you get the encore, which is a big sort of, you know, climactic crescendo of all of the hits. But the way that this tour is structured, it's album by album. It starts with Lover and then it goes through different records. So you get five to seven songs from each record, basically. And each record has got a hit on it. And so each sort of half hour section is full of hits. And so it's just like being strafed with pleasure if you like these songs, which I do like these songs, it's overwhelming and she's a much better singer and dancer than she used to be. It's a fairly kind of like standard looking pop show that's not sort of like a great conceptual kind of narrative, historical thing like a Beyonce show is, but there are some really miraculous set pieces. Like there's a bit where you can see that the stage that she's on is designed to look like water and she dives into the stage and she disappears underneath it. You know, into what, to all extents and purposes, had looked solid moments before. Who was in the crowd? What was the atmosphere like? So me and my friend uh, had seats on the floor and we were sort of surrounded by the entire arena. The screaming was crazy. It was was the loudest thing I have ever, ever heard. I mean, it was very girl-centric. It's one of those shows where, like, if you're a guy, you've got no problem going to the bathroom. There's a thing at these tours where people are trading friendship bracelets that they've made with like beaded lyrics on. I didn't take any to trade because I do not have any beading capacity, um, but this nice lady behind us gave me and my friend some. She's been a big pop star
1: for the best part of a decade and a half now, but 2023 has been a huge year for her. At one point this summer, she had four albums in the US top 10, just Tell us, you know, how many records
3: has she broken? Just how big is she right now? She's had more number one albums than any woman in history. She beat Barbara Streisand to that record this year. USA Today a few weeks ago announced that they were hiring a dedicated Taylor Swift reporter. There was lots of headlines then about that story. But to me, it's kind of unnecessary because when you do the job that I do, we are Taylor Swift reporters. She makes up so much of a huge percentage of what we cover because she is just so monumental at the moment. You kind of don't need a bespoke one. The tour has also caused seismic activity um, in Seattle over two nights. What? Their Swifties dancing caused seismic activity equivalent to a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. It feels sort of like she's the ruler of a small nation at this moment, like not even just a pop star, but like she commands a vast constituency. (laughs) I
1: want to talk about her craft, you know, how she's actually achieved this level of success, why her songs are so successful. I know that her parents moved the family from Pittsburgh to Nashville when she was a teenager to try and get her set up in the country music scene. How important has song craft been to her career?
3: I mean, I think it's it's embarrassing. I don't think she would be where she is now without it. She was spotted, I think, at age 15, playing at the Bluebird Cafe, which is a Nashville institution, by Scott Bolchetta, who runs Big Machine Records, and he signed her.
2: She came in, and she was adorable, and she was smart, and she was funny, and she, she started playing songs. It was just her and her manager, no parents. And I think the second song was a song called Picture to Burn, and she played, I said, that's a hit song. And she kind of went, that? Really?
3: Her first two records, you know, she's always been her own songwriter, but she co-wrote with other people. But some of the um, reviews that those first two albums got tried to, you know, as was very much, you know, the era of the time, the 2000s, tried to credit her success to other people and say, like, well, there's no way a teenage girl could be doing things this good. And so for her third album, Speak Now, she did zero co-writes. It's the only 100% Taylor Swift written album with nobody else writing on it whatsoever. And it's got some of her very, very best songs on it. and so that was really her declaring like nope it's me and taylor swift was always very much like well definitely from that point responded to the narrative around her and like shaped what she's done you know in response to that so the songcraft i think is everything you know
1: it seems to me that a lot of her songs are confessionals almost you know she really
3: takes people through a story yeah she's a great storyteller and You know, one of the reasons that she broke in Nashville in the country music industry is because she was writing about life from a teenage girl's perspective, not like a middle-aged male songwriter's idea of what a teenage girl's perspective would be. And there was nobody else doing that and that really cut through and she found her fan base. you know, it's the storytelling, but also the specifics. Um, she really brought specificity to um, songwriting and pop songwriting. And, you know, if, you, if we talk about what her musical influence is on a generation of young songwriters, I would say it's that.
1: And, you know, kind of maintaining that songwriting craft, but she's also played with different styles during the course of her career, hasn't she? You know, if you think about songs like Shake It Off and Me, Me with an exclamation mark, I should say Me, um, are just pure bubblegum pop. And then in lockdown, she released these introspective indie songs like Cardigan and August. She's worked with artists from across different genres, like The National, Kendrick Lamar, Ed Sheeran, Ice Spice. She has been able to show herself to be quite dynamic.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of her MO is like proving people wrong. And there comes a point where it's like she's conquered Nashville. You know, there's no mansions left to conquer. So she turns her hand to pop music and she starts working with Max Martin on Red. Um, which is still like a bit country but it is pretty pop't about
0: you but'm feeling 22. everything will be all right if you keep me next to you
3: but then by the time we get to 1989 in 2014 that's like a pure pop record and she's not doing country anymore the player's play, play,
0: play, play, play
3: She's always trying to prove her versatility, and you know she's very ambitious. You know she she probably wants to see like, well, can I do this? And I think it's the same thing with folklore and evermore, the really muted albums that came out in the pandemic. I really got the impression that she was going right. This is how I'm going to protect my career longevity. Now I'm going to do something that's a bit more serious and a bit less dependent on glitter and sequins.
0: But I can see-
1: As you've said, Taylor Swift is someone defined by great songs. But there's also been so much fascination and speculation in the media about who she might be as a person. You know, whether that's how she responded to Kanye West when he stormed the stage during her win at the VMAs in 2009.
0: Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time.
1: Or the speculation, the constant speculation about who she's dating and the clues to their relationships that she may or may not be dropping in her songs. People are just fascinated, aren't they?
3: Yeah, definitely. And um, I would say it's almost like an art form, the way that she plays with this. You know, on one hand, she has said, kind of rightly so, that there's unfair media speculation and interest in her love life. And, you know, she, especially around the release of 1989, she was characterised as, you know, like a a man-eater and stuff like that for having gone on a very normal amount of dates. Um,
1: In the last couple of years, the media have had a really wonderful fixation on kind of painting me as, like, the psycho serial dater girl. (laughs) It's been awesome. I've loved it.
3: Um, But then at the same time, she has also seeded clues about this to fans in her liner notes. And, you know, she definitely knows the benefits of a relationship to keep her in the headlines. You know, 1989 is about her relationship with Harry Styles. But um, as far as we can tell, that lasted sort of like a matter of months, but it's sort of blown up to be this massive totemic thing.
0: Romance rumours continue to fly between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey amid their whirlwind weekend in New York City. This thing that's
3: going on at the moment with Travis Kelsey, the American football player, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about whether that's a real relationship or whether it's sort of like, you know, mutually beneficial PR. So, yeah, she is a master of PR. But she hasn't always been able
1: to control how the media and and how people talk about her has she she's had along the way some difficult patches
3: yeah the the hardest patch was definitely in the wake of the 1989 album you know that was when she claimed to have sort of discovered feminism and started talking about feminism in her interviews a little bit more i mean it seems so quaint and so gross when you look back at like 2014 seems like such recent memory, but when you read those interviews and so on, it seems like a completely different era. But yes, yeah, she started talking about feminism. She started hanging out with loads of women very publicly, the quote unquote girl squad era. On one hand, she was claiming to be a feminist and support women. But then on the other, there's a the song Bad Blood on 1989, which she very much fanned the flames of letting everybody know that it was about Katy Perry stealing a backing dancer off her or something utterly pathetic. And there was a video for Bad Blood where she got loads of her famous friends in it. And it sort of seemed less like my cool girl squad friends than just like bullies ganging up on each other. It was um it was a mean girl's vibe. Yeah, very, very much so. And then at the same time, um, she and Kanye West had, had like a bit of a reconciliation after the VNA's thing. But then he put out a song called Famous, in which he sings about Taylor. I think me and Taylor might still have sex. I made that bitch famous. And she said that she never gave permission for that to happen and that it was kind of horrifying. And then Kim Kardashian, Kanye with West's then wife, leaked video of him on the phone to her where he was explaining it, where it seemed as though he had told her about it and, and she was lying about it. What I
0: give a f- about is it, just you as a person and as a friend. I want things that That's make sweet. you feel good. Um,
4: yeah, I mean, don't whatever lie is better. It's obviously very funny. And I really appreciate
3: you telling me about it. That's really nice. You could tell that this clip was edited and you weren't seeing the full conversation. But at the time, that was enough to prompt a huge backlash and for Taylor Swift to be cast as a liar. And that's when Kim Kardashian labeled her a snake. She was ultimately vindicated about that video because in the last few years, somebody leaked the entire uncut thing. And you can see that Kanye West does not tell her that that's what the lyric is going to be. But anyway, that, that hadn't happened um, at the time when it actually came out. So there was a huge backlash. How did she make a comeback after that? So up until that point, she'd released an album every two years like clockwork. And she didn't. She skipped a year. She waited three years to put out Reputation, which was very much about engaging with, you know, her public reputation and had a very gothic, uh, had very gothic imagery. It used a lot of snakes in it. When he went to see the tour, there was like this giant like 40-foot inflatable snake that loomed out of the back of the stage. I think she nicknamed Karen or something like that. Um, So yeah, she turned turned it into uh, something that she could use. There was a lot of merchandise you could buy with that snake on it. More so than many of her contemporaries, Taylor Swift
1: seems to have this close, even parasocial relationship with her fans. Just tell me a bit about how that works and how that's played
3: into how successful she is. Early on, I think she really recognised the benefit of speaking directly to fans and being able to kind of circumvent the industry in that way. She was an assiduous user of MySpace. There's a lot of quite funny, embarrassing photos still kind of floating around from that era. In the beginning, she was playing like quite little shows and so she could speak face-to-face with fans. And so there are people that she kind of established relationships there and I think she realised that that... FaceTime is really key to building a career and building loyalty and as she got you know too big to necessarily maintain that on like a one to one level she used platforms like Tumblr to speak directly to fans and as well as speaking to fans she would like posts and she knows that you know on a platform like that people are looking at what you like and so that that might be a way that she would endorse a theory that somebody had about the symbolism in a video and especially in the 1989 era she started donating money to fans who were in like difficult situations or needing money for college Quite often those checks were for the exact sum of like $1,989, aka 1989, <laughs> just because, you know, you've got a brand of donations as well. You know, she said before that she's really trained fans to look for clues. In her liner notes, she would highlight particular letters and then you would be able to spell out something that would tell you what guy this song was about, something like that. It's really clever because it means that fans pay close attention because they want to be the ones who solve it. And I also think that it kind of makes what she does seem almost like written in the stars, like preordained in a way. It gives it this like mystical feel.
1: I mean, that sounds really satisfying um, and just very, very clever to be creating mythology around herself, you know, while she's in the middle of a publicity cycle. She also was doing, and I don't know if she's still doing them, these, these secret fan sessions, you know, where she would invite fans to her house to listen to an album before it came out and just
3: just tell us about those. I went to one for Lover in London, which wasn't at her house. It was at this like house that had been rented. But I reckon there was maybe 40 fans there or so. They all sit in a room and then she comes in and she talks about every song and then she plays it, and kind of sits in her chair dancing along to it. And then after that, she like, set up in a room and every fan that was there got one-on-one time with her. I think I left at like midnight to go home and I was told that she finished with the last fan at like 2am. I think they basically got like as much time as they wanted with her to be able to have like a real conversation. And again, like other big pop stars aren't doing that.
1: You've met her several times. What is Taylor Swift like in person?
3: Um, I would describe her as sort of goofy and presidential. You know, I met her a smattering of times. The first time was a meet and greet at a show When you go to a meet and greet, you get a photo with her. And uh, I had quite long hair in that picture. And then I think it was probably just over a year later that I met her again. And I had a bob. And she was like, oh, you've had your hair cut. It looks so nice. And it's like, there's no way you remember that. Like, I don't remember what my friend's hair looked like a year ago. But I sense that, like, her team probably keep information on people that she may come to interact with again. And then she can kind of look at that and have a refresh and then make it feel like you're having a personal experience. Which you are having a personal experience. You know, some people might say that this is calculating, but... She doesn't have to do that, Um, and certainly lots of, um, you know, stars of her calibre would never do anything of the sort.
4: My name is Melissa Rogers, and I am a huge (laughs) Swifty.
1: Melissa and her husband, Brian, were sitting behind Laura at the Era's concert, and they got chatting. She's the one who gave Laura a friendship bracelet.
4: I have been a Swifty since 2007. The first moment and first song that I heard of Taylor's was Teardrops on My Guitar. He's reason for the teardrops on my guitar. It was when i was in high school and i was actually kind of going through a little bit of a uh, romantic boy heartbreak situation myself and i was driving home from school and teardrops on my guitar came on the radio and as soon as i heard it i just remember thinking this girl gets it. And I remember thinking to myself, how does she know exactly how I feel? This is exactly how I'm feeling right now. Um, and here I am all these years later, and she's still a huge part of my life. I have a very stressful professional background, and I would constantly listen to Taylor's music um, before I would go into work. And if I felt myself getting overwhelmed during work, I would sing her songs in my head to kind of recenter myself. What is it that you do as a job, Melissa? Melissa? Um, So currently I'm working in administration. Um, I have a background in nursing. Um, So for quite a few years, I worked as a nurse at a hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and I worked on a burn trauma floor. I actually was a nurse in Boston working at this hospital during the time when the Boston Marathon bombings happened. And that time in particular was very challenging for me. Um, Some of those individuals were my patients and I would just kind of take a moment. And I would actually, there were a few specific Taylor songs. I would kind of step aside and I would just kind of sing those songs to myself and take a deep breath. Taylor and her songs were really what got me through those difficult work shifts. Which songs? Um, Particularly, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together (laughs) and 22. And the reasons for those is I think they had just come out at that time. Um, So they were kind of fresh in my mind. And they were just really fun, happy, upbeat songs. When did you first see her perform live? The first time that I saw her was at Gillette Stadium um, during the Reputation Tour, and it just took my breath away. I was crying, and it was a very emotional experience, and it was um, you know, just one of the best days of my life. And so that album and just everything about that whole era is really very um, important to me. I also, um, when I got married, we didn't have a wedding, um, but New Year's Day is one of my favorite songs of Taylor. And when we got married, it was just the two of us in our house and it was on New Year's Eve. And we had this beautiful little dance in front of our Christmas tree and we were listening to New Year's Day. How many times have you seen her perform now? Well, including the Reputation tour, it would be seven. the The Eras tour alone was six. Um, you, you've seen her to, six
1: times on the Eras tour.
4: Yes, I have. I I will say that I am, you know, financially a little poor, but spiritually very rich now. <laughs> um. Well, you know, people
1: spend tens of thousands of pounds on their weddings. Yes. How much does it cost you to go and see Taylor?
4: Oh gosh I don't think I can say the exact number but um, at this point it's probably the cost of a small wedding.
1: Do you think that you've given up on anything in order to really invest in being a fan?
4: I don't feel that I have no. The Eras tour experience and, and I call it an experience because to me it's so much more than a concert. I would say that it's Truly turned me into a whole new person, and I would say a better person. Um, at baseline, I'm pretty. I'm a pretty shy, introverted person, and mm-hmm. I mean, look at me now. I'm <laughs> doing a podcast. Um, you know, that's something that I would never. If you told me a year ago that I would be doing this podcast today, I would have said you're mistaken that's a different person that's not possible i mean i can't even tell you how many people wonderful amazing people i've gotten to meet during my eras tour journey Um, something about the excitement of the tour and the passion of the fans and the whole experience has really encouraged me to open up
1: coming up taking on the streaming services and re-releasing her albums how swift's savvy business deals have capture at the top of the charts.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Today in Focus is supported by Better Help. Here's a question If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash today in focus.
1: Laura, we've been talking about how Taylor Swift has become this mega star. We've talked about her songwriting ability, how tightly she controls her public image And, you know, her relationship, her amazing relationship with her fans like Melissa. She's also
3: a very canny business person, isn't she? Yes, incredibly so. She is very canny about this stuff. I mean, in the past, she's been really ruthless about sponsorship stuff, right down to like partnering with UPS and pizza box companies. There's been an enormous amount of branded stuff. She's also gone to war with it's kind of like various aspects of the music industry over like fair compensation for songwriters and she has both been sued for sort of you know alleged plagiarism and I don't think any of that has ever actually come to anything there's been some stuff settled out of court but she is also well fairly well known for going after people who kind of like infringe on her image so yeah it's very much a business operation And, you know,
1: one of the business savvy things that she's done in terms of keeping her sales up is to release all these different versions of the same albums, right? Different formats, different colours.
3: Yes, there are multiple versions of the same record, like the 1989 Taylor's version uh, re-recording, which is coming out, you know, I was on the fan mailing list as well. And a couple of weeks ago, you would get an email being like, "Rose pink version available now for just five hours? You know, this limited window where hardcore fans are like, well, I've got to get it now. Otherwise, I'm not a good fan. And then two days later, it'd be like aquamarine version. Two days later, like marigold yellow or something. I ended up unsubscribing from that list because I have to say it was making me sick. She is one of the richest uh, pop stars in the entire world. And she's charging fans, in you know, $30 or more a time to buy different coloured versions so that she can achieve a higher chart position. And also, by all accounts, it seems as though she wants the re-recorded version of 1989 to chart higher than the original one. And I just kind of think, for what, during kind of quite a profound cost of living crisis?
1: Yeah, and a lot of her fans are teenage girls. And the pressure to keep buying into that fandom is a lot, particularly because she's been re-releasing her first six albums because of rights issues around
3: them. Tell me about that project. Yeah, so after Big Machine Records was sold to Scooter Braun, who had been Kanye West manager at the time of all the bad Kanye West stuff. He's also
1: managed Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Demi Lovato, like a real big figure in the
3: American music industry. Yeah, her catalogue was sold to him and she was not given the opportunity to buy it outright, she said. And so to devalue his investment, she said that she was going to re-record each one of those albums. And... Yeah, I mean, it's been a great success. I think all the albums have charted at number one, I think, in America anyway. And she more or less educated a generation of music fans in how the idea of like master recordings and the music industry works. She's successfully made supporting these records seem like a moral issue. It's very clever. You know, I think she's very much within her right to do it. I do also think it slightly plays into the fan gouging a little bit because it's like, well, your fans have already spent money on these records and now they're going to spend money on. The new versions because they come with some bonus songs and blah 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 but Mm. maybe I'm being old and cynical
1: do you think the issues that she's highlighted with the music industry do you think by raising those issues she's managed to actually change the industry and make
3: things better for artists who are way down the rung of success Um, I think that she's definitely raised awareness about the idea of like the music industry owning your recordings. I mean, something that's quite interesting is Olivia Rodrigo, who was the big breakout pop star of 2021. You know, she had come from Disney and traditionally, like, you know, young Disney stars would sign to Disney's in-house label, Hollywood, if they want to start a music career. But Olivia Rodrigo didn't want to do that. And she signed with another label. And I asked her when I interviewed her in 2021, whether she had negotiated to own her master's and she said that she had, and it was something that had been inspired by, you know, the Taylor Swift fight. Fast forward a couple of years, and it seems as though Olivia and Taylor are no longer friends, as they seem to be at the outset of Olivia's career. Olivia was forced to give 50% of, of the writing credits of her song, Deja Vu, to Taylor Swift, and because of similarities between a very tiny bit of the song and a very tiny bit of Taylor Swift's song, Crawl Summer. And all signs of a public friendship seem to disappear after that and I asked Olivia about it when I interviewed her recently and she said that she would not say who her songs are about because there's speculation that her single vampire was about Taylor Swift. Laura, you've explained
1: how through this combination of talent, clever dealings with her fans, very intentional business and PR decisions have led Taylor Swift to become this musical juggernaut. Where does she go from here? Like, has she actually got anything left to prove?
3: Well, no. uh, And this is sort of where I'm having some scepticism at the moment because I just think, what is left to prove? Like, why are you flogging all of this merch? Why the relentless sort of, like, personal overexposure? I think what's really interesting is, you know, she originally had this backlash around 1989 um, from being overexposed and she says it in that phone call to Kanye West. She says, I'm this close to being overexposed. So she was well aware of it at the time. And then it led to this huge backlash and she disappeared for a while. Now, arguably, she is more famous, more exposed and very much, you know, complicit, active in the role of that exposure. I do think, what is the purpose here? And are you slightly playing with fire? And yeah, where else do you go? Like, surely the only remaining drive should be sort of artistry. And I mean, Midnight's the last original album that she did. I think it's got about three good songs on it. And I think it's not widely beloved by kind of like hardcore Swifties. My hope is that once her success and world-beating stature is absolutely assured that more original music might be in the offing, but I don't know, that doesn't seem to be where her head's at at the moment.
1: As somebody who's so carefully curated her career, she's going to be game-planning her next moves, isn't she?
3: Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think the two things on the horizon that will potentially be pivotal for her is... Were there any more details of this Olivia Rodrigo situation come out? Because it seems as though she may have been uncharitable to a young songwriter. And I think that could dent her if details of that came out, whatever they may be. And then also the American election. I'm really curious about how she's going to use her voice because, you know, as I was saying earlier, she is basically the leader of a small country, not even a small country, quite a big country. And I think she has got the power to mobilize a lot of votes. I think that those are the two next big things that she's going to have to deal with. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you.
1: That was Laura Snapes, The Guardian's deputy music editor. It's worth going back and rereading her interview with Taylor Swift from 2019, as well as her not-so-enthusiastic review of her latest re-released album. There's also a brilliant article on theguardian.com by Shard D'Souza from earlier this year, it's titled, She is a Snake, but in a positive way How Taylor Swift Became the World's Biggest Pop Star Again. Thank you to Melissa Rogers and to all the Swifties who stopped to chat to me for this episode. The producer was Natalie Tenner, and sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. I hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday.
0: This is The Guardian.